0: You are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville, and it's time for the Tuesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Circle's Wild and Scenic Film Festival online January 14th through the 24th, a virtual experience this year with over 100 environmental and adventure films, filmmakers, activists, workshops, and more, wildincenicfilmfestival.org. After the NPR headlines and local weather, we'll have water news with Steve Baker, and we'll have a special report from NPR on water pollution in the ocean. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this month's edition of Embracing the Journey. And at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather.
1: Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President-elect Joe Biden is praising lawmakers for signing off on a $900 billion coronavirus relief measure. Though he said it's just a down payment on what is actually needed to help millions of struggling Americans. Hours after Congress approved the measure, Biden said he'll ask lawmakers early next year for more money for firefighters, police, frontline health workers, and working families. And he said despite the arrival of coronavirus vaccines, the worst is yet to come.
0: Our darkest days in the battle against COVID are ahead of us. Not behind us. So we need to prepare ourselves to steel our spines. As frustrating as it is to hear, it's going to take patience, persistence, and determination to beat this virus.
1: Biden also said recovery from the pandemic will take a lot longer than the 10 weeks of unemployment aid in the new package, promising more help in the months ahead. Of concern globally, a new strain of the coronavirus, which has spread rapidly in parts of England and triggered significant global travel disruptions. In Germany, Pfizer's partner BioNTech says its vaccine is likely to be effective against the new variant. Here's Esme Nicholson.
2: Speaking at a press conference, BioNTech's chief executive, Ugar Shaheen, said his team is currently investigating the vaccine's efficacy against the new B b-117 strain, adding that they will have results within two weeks. Shaheen said he is confident the current vaccine will protect against the new strain and that if it doesn't, they could engineer a new vaccine within six weeks, although its approval could take longer. While there is no indication that the B b-117 strain increases the severity of COVID-19, data suggest it's more contagious. The head of the Robert Koch Institute, Lothar Wieler, said Tuesday that the strain is probably also present in Germany. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin.
1: California's governor is naming a replacement to serve out the remainder of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's term in the U.S. Senate. From Sacramento, Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon has more.
2: Secretary of State Alex Padilla will finish out the final two years of the term. He'll be the first Latino to represent California in the U.S. Senate, a milestone many Latino groups say is long overdue. In a video posted to Governor Gavin Newsom's social media, Padilla said as senator, he hopes to continue to strengthen voting rights. We've
3: got a lot of
1: work to do, and uh, I'm ready. I'm ready.
2: As Secretary of State, Padilla oversaw a big shift to vote by mail and record-breaking voter registration during the November election. He previously served in the state legislature and on the Los Angeles City Council. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento.
1: A mixed close on Wall Street today with gains in the tech sector pushing the Nasdaq to another all-time high, though the other major U.S. indices were lower. The Dow was down 200 points. The S&P 500 fell 7 points. The Nasdaq rose 65 points. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News.
0: And taking a look at the weather. First here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area. Looks like a low of 44 tonight, high of 60 tomorrow. Mostly sunny tomorrow and Thursday, but rain on Christmas Day and through the weekend. Highs in the upper 40s. Sacramento, low of 33, high of 55, partly cloudy tomorrow and Thursday with rain on Christmas And also on Saturday and Sunday. And in Truckee, a low of 9, high of 39, partly cloudy tomorrow and Thursday, but snow on Christmas Day and over the weekend. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, welcome to KVMR, Steve. Hey, glad to be here. Steve, it's interesting how you can have a disaster in one area, and it can actually be something that helps out in another area. Yeah, that's true. Um, It's kind
4: of unpredictable.
0: Uh, Give us some examples of that.
4: Well, let me give you an example that we can all... Relate to somewhat. Uh, Remember the 2017 Tubbs fire and then uh, the 2018, going back further, the campfire? That sort of started this discussion about water quality and wildfires. Okay, Uh, after Santa Cruz lit up this year, 2020, even more study was was kicked in and they were sampling uh, the water supplies even more heavily. And what they found is that benzene, of all things. Now, benzene you can find in plastic pipe. You find it in gasoline and that sort of thing. They're finding benzene in these drinking water, in in their drinking water, whether it be city water or otherwise. And uh, just for those who aren't familiar with with this uh, chemical, again, it's found in gasoline and plastics and other things. It's a carcinogen at really low concentrations, one part per billion. Okay, so imagine a drop of water. In an Olympic sized swimming pool, that's the concentration. okay? It's a teeny concentration and it's carcinogenic. Well, uh, these new studies are looking at uh, looking at heated plastic pipes, water pipes, and how that might potentially cause uh, chemicals like this to get into our water supply. And what they've concluded is that wildfires can trigger some widespread contamination of this sort. It's, it's going to be more commonplace as we uh, experience these things more often. And it would, it's very easy for a fire in one part of a building to cause water quality issues in another part of the building or in other buildings within the complex and so forth. Once the benzene is released in the system, it's going to be distributed throughout the entire uh, supply in in that in that particular uh, system, so uh, and and then the downside is we're not just talking about benzene, okay? We're talking about possibly a hundred other chemicals that potentially can leak from damaged plastics.
0: So that means then potentially, if uh, let's just say in the in in the Paradise Fire, uh, many people were dependent on their wells, I do believe, in yeah. some of the areas, and if their house burned down and they build a new house, does that mean the well water just may not be good if they had a lot of plastic pipes
4: melting? Yeah, and it's not just looking at their own properties. It's looking at those around them at a, at somewhat of a distance as well. Yeah. If, if uh, that water ends up migrating or trans- being transported in the groundwater aquifer, to their property, and then they extract it because they have a well in their property. Then, yeah, they're going to experience that. So, for those types of places that experience wildfires, and they're 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 rehabilitating their wells, or restoring and bringing them back, they're probably going to want to put uh, 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 point of use uh, cleanup measures, you know, water quality uh, devices, so that they remove those benzenes. Well, what are the problems with with plastic anyway? Well, they're common. Plastic pipe is is cheaper to install than metal pipe. And so, I mean, look at all of us. We have we have piping in our home walls. We have piping, you know, underneath the floors we stand on. We have it in the uh, the meet, from the meters to to our buildings, you know, outside, buried just not too far from underneath the ground. Of course, it's in our wells, our our wells. And then uh, there's water storage. A lot of properties have tanks, above ground tanks, below ground tanks, some of which are plastic. And then we have, look at all the appliances that we have in our homes. Uh, There are plastic components in the faucet, you know, in water heater, dip tubes, uh, in the refrigerator, in the ice maker, you know, the tubing and and a lot of other things. So it's, plastic is really common in our systems. And if you look at the temperatures at which plastics can get damaged, uh, those temperatures can be as low as 392 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Water boils at 212, not too much more, 392. That's when you start damaging your pipe. Well, guess how hot these fires are? They're sometimes 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a real potential to cause problems. So scientists are right now testing PVC piping. They're looking at the chlorinated PVCs as well. They're looking at the polypipe, both uh, the, nor- the the basic polypipe, but also the high-density pipe. And, uh, and they're finding that it is, in fact, an issue. And, you know, you can't boil the water that's coming out of these pipes and, and kind of treat it that way because what you've done is you've released the benzene now into your breathing zone. So instead of uh, drinking it, consuming it, which is a problem, you are inhaling it, which is actually even a, a greater problem. We don't want to be doing that. So uh, and, then, and then again, you can't rinse the pipes either. That's not the quick fix. It just doesn't work. It would take over 100 days, they say, of nonstop water rinsing to make that pipe safe again, so that's not really uh, a way to go either. It's it's a problem. Well, what can be done about this? Isolate the damaged pipes as soon as possible. Do not wait. Once once this happens, the fire's over. You're you're uh, restoring your property. Uh, identify all those pipes and get rid of them. Cl- you know, close them down it's, uh, and abandon those pipes. And if the well that you have on your property has been half melted. The surface casing has been melted. Then uh, you're going to want to abandon that well and re-drill another one. So, uh, or put in a new a new uh, sanitary seal. Uh, it's got to all be new stuff. And you may uh, just expect, have an expectation that there will be some of these chemicals in the aquifer itself. Uh, because not everybody's going to react very quickly and everybody's a source of uh, moving contamination deep into the ground, into the aquifers. So that can happen. And, and, of course, once you've isolated the damaged pipes, you need to replace them. And you need to replace them with things that are in healthy shape. So uh, that's what I would suggest. Another proactive step would be to make sure you don't have vegetation growing near the valves and the meter boxes or near your buildings, you know, your homes. Because uh, that's just saying, "Hey, come on, fire! Yeah, you know, why don't you burn right here? You know, where where you're going to hurt me the most?" So, those are the things, some things that you can do.
0: Well, um, let's just kind of lighten things up
4: a little bit. It's <laughs> Christmas like time. What are some water ideas oh, for Christmas? Yes. Oh, oh, all right. We're still probably some of us are still shopping, right? Well. I had this idea. Let's do kind of a twelve days of Christmas shopping thing. Yeah, I know we only have a couple of days left, but anyhow, I'll give you some ideas out there as to what you might buy. this water related. Starting on the first day of Christmas, how about a kitchen strainer? I mean, one thing you can I can say is I've been trying to fix clogged pipes up lately, and if I had only had in place one of those kitchen strainers, that sure would have helped me out in a lot, of, a lot of ways. Okay, day two, second day of Christmas, usable water bottles. This saves something like 1,500 glasses of tap water for every new plastic bottle. All right, so it's well worth it. Just reuse these plastic bottles that you have, the ones that are safe. And then, of course, we've also heard uh, for day three, Christmas uh, day three, reusable straws. They have metal straws these days. We can use. Don't buy the plastic ones. Uh, we've all heard about the downside of of these plastic straws. There's no need to to use them anymore. Fourth day of Christmas, no more microbead free products. Okay, so all the ladies out there, if you're if you're uh, you know using these face scrubs and these these different things. Uh, 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 don't use them. <laughs> buy, buy some alternative supplies. It's in toothpaste. Don't buy those toothpaste anymore. And it's even in soaps. And, and of course, the idea behind microbeads is it creates an abrasive material within what you're using, and it, it helps you clean more. But there are other ways to cleanse more. And so uh, so don't use, uh, try, try to buy more n- um, non-microbead-free products. Fifth Day of Christmas, compost bins. Lot fewer flushes. There are benefits to that. So, so get a compost bin, bathroom trash can. Believe it or not, you know we're supposed to only uh, send down a toity the three P's, right, including some toilet paper. That uh, people do more than just that, and that does create problems within our septic systems, within our the leach fields and so forth. So do don't do that. Get a trash can in the bathroom. There's another small practical gift. Uh, medication disposal packages. Don't flush your your unused meds down the toilet. OK, dispose of it uh, the other way. And uh, and then, uh, you know, the list goes on. But but really uh, the last one I would say on on the 12th day of Christmas would be get a shower head that is really cozy, comfortable. You'll love those showers, and it only uses one gallon a minute, okay? And if you don't know where to find something like that, go experience it by going to Las Vegas. I mean, maybe you're not going to be there for the shows and the gambling and all that stuff, but uh, go for the shower because <laughs> it's a requirement over there, and, uh, boy, those shower heads are really, really, really nice. So, Paul, I want to say Merry Christmas to you. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Solstice to to you and really everyone else listening here on KVMR. Always Love coming down here and talking with you every week on. Managing
0: groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at Baker at operationunite.co. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, And that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co.
2: Billions of tiny plastic pellets have been spilling into oceans and rivers the world over where birds and fish eat them. They are the building blocks of all plastic. Melt 350 of them, you get a yogurt cup, a thousand gets you a water bottle. But an NPR and PBS Frontline investigation found the oil and plastic industry has long known they're an environmental problem. NPR's Laura Sullivan brings us this story about how the oil and plastic industry evaded regulation despite decades of spills. You probably haven't spent a lot of time standing on train tracks looking at your feet or looking at the edge of a highway outside a plastic
0: manufacturer.
2: But if you did, there's a good chance you'll see them. Little plastic pellets.
0: This is Cox's Creek and we're looking at fresh pellets that has fallen out of the trucks. Ronnie Hamrick
2: is standing on State Road 35 in Southeast Texas. Rising four square miles behind him is the petrochemical plant Formosa Plastics.
0: And They're not just here, they're over there, they're in Port Lovaca. You're gonna find them down the road.
2: Hamrick's not an anti-plastic environmentalist. He's a former supervisor who worked at Formosa for 25 years. And while he worked there, he says he was told to cover up spills of plastic pellets.
0: They want you to put down a certain number. You know what I'm saying? They want to keep it low. So. So you lie. So you lie. That's my job. That's my bread and butter. So I got to do what they say. I got a family.
2: What's striking about standing outside Formosa and finding pellets 100 yards from the plant's edge is that last year Formosa agreed to pay $50 million to settle a lawsuit in which it agreed to zero discharge of pellets. And yet here they are, and down in the creek where the plant drains, thousands more. A federal judge called Formosa a serial offender. Formosa says it's working to improve its containment systems. But Formosa is just one of thousands of companies that either make or use plastic pellets in the United States. The oil and plastic industry says it doesn't have a problem. Officials told me Formosa was simply a, quote, bad actor, while leading companies like Exxon and Chevron recently told shareholders that at their dozens of facilities worldwide, they either lose not a single pellet or just two sandwich bags full. And here's how they say they've done it.
3: Thanks again for signing on to Operation Clean Sweep. We
2: operation Clean Sweep is a voluntary program the industry came up with in 1991. Companies that join watch videos and promise to keep pellets from spilling of plants, trucks, ships, and rail cars. There's no data required, no numbers, nothing public. The
1: Operation Clean Sweep is truly making
2: a difference. Together, we can achieve zero pellet, flake, and powder loss. The industry says it's been a success.
1: Pellet containment is incredibly important to our members.
2: Steve Russell was until recently the vice president of plastics for the American Chemistry Council, which jointly runs the program.
1: Nobody wants plastic in the environment. And if a spill happens, and if, and we're going to assume it's an accidental release, then it will be reported and remediation steps can be taken.
2: Formosa is an Operation Clean Sweep member. So I asked two former workers and Ronnie Hamrick about it.
0: I have no idea what you're even talking about. I've never heard of it.
2: There's evidence the industry does, in fact, have a pellet problem. Recent spills on beaches in Louisiana and South Carolina. And studies show pellets are contaminating oceans, killing birds and fish, and carrying toxins through rivers. There's also evidence the industry has known about this problem all along. In 2005, the industry participated in a study of 10 pellet plants. It found pellets washed away in heavy rain at every single facility and called Operation Clean Sweep inadequate. But even long before that, there's a memo buried inside thousands of documents left over from old industry lawsuits. It was written in March 1991. The industry's Trade Association warns top executives from Exxon, Chevron, Dow, DuPont, and others that the EPA had recently found pellets to be, quote, ubiquitous in the environment. Regulation and permits are likely coming, the memo says, unless they act quickly. It may still be possible to institute voluntary programs to address the pellet issue, it says. Unless this occurs, it is likely EPA will act independently. Then, just four months later...
1: We developed a program that that was called Operation Clean Sweep.
2: Lou Freeman was a vice president at the time for the Trade Association, then called the Society of the Plastics Industry.
1: I don't recall any discussions about uh, quantitatively measuring the success of the program. It was being measured really about who was participating, not what the results were.
2: So it was a voluntary program. Yes. Without any metrics.
1: Yeah. I would like to think that they were also doing it because it was the right thing to do, but I, I'd also be naive if I didn't think that much of the motivation was was governed by, uh, you know, keeping the regulators off our back.
2: Today, the EPA doesn't regulate pellets, and in the almost 30 years since, the agency told NPR it has brought just 10 Clean Water Act enforcement cases against facilities accused of spilling pellets. But how would anyone really know if pellets were leaking? If you head down to the Gulf of Mexico, pellet manufacturers like Chevron Phillips say they're not.
4: Uh, I can tell you that it's not a problem here at Chevron Phillips. We have almost no pellets leaving our sites.
2: Jim Becker is the vice president of sustainability for Chevron Phillips. He met me in a warehouse after plant officials showed me ponds and drains. They said catch all the pellets.
1: You've, you've heard a little bit about Operation Clean Sweep. We've been practicing that uh, since the company was formed.
2: How do you know that, that you've had almost no Pellets leaving your site.
4: I feel, I feel confident. We have multiple layers of protection to prevent that.
2: Without any data, it's hard to know. But then, you could go look. We need a hacksaw or something. And if you're going to hunt pellets a mile up a Texas Bayou, you're going to want to bring Diane Wilson, the woman who tracked Formosa's leaking pellets for five years.
4: You never know when you're going to run into them.
2: We passed two snakes, a baby alligator and a pile of fire ants until we finally reached Chevron Phillips outfall, a marshy little pond of water under a road with a stretch of public land to stand on. Aha. Uh-huh. Pellets. You found pellets? Yep, right here. Look at there. See, look at there. All of that's pellets. All of that's pellets. And see they're floating, see? They're everywhere. Chevron Phillips' plant is less than three years old. They told me it has some of the most advanced pellet containment systems in the world. They say it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Well, it is. And, you know, and we just sit down here, uh, what, five minutes in the mud and pull them out. And probably right across there is going to be a lot more. There were. We found pellets lining the sides as we waded through a storm drain, along the fence line that circles the plant, and on the railroad tracks nearby. When I asked Chevron Phillips about them, they said the pellets came from a single storm event and that they've since made improvements. They called them a small amount of pellets. Still, it took several days and two vacuum trucks to clean them all up. Laura Sullivan, NPR News. <laughs>
0: You're listening to community supported radio, KVMR, FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino Placerville, and this is the Tuesday edition of KVMR's evening news. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, six to six thirty p.m. Coming up at 6 30 we have this month's edition of Embracing the Journey and at 7 o'clock Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast we have Mark Cunaberdi with a Commentary.
3: Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. The expectations of investors can vary depending on current market environments. This can be best illustrated in my own experience when meeting with new clients to evaluate their needs and expectations. Humorously, most new clients always say the same thing when asked what they would like the portfolio to accomplish. They'll tell me, I want to take some risk and hopefully make some money but don't want to lose any. This can be summed up by saying they want to establish a conservative defense while maintaining a strong offense. Although a football team can do this, in investing, the posture is either conservative, moderate, or aggressive, with varying degrees in between, of course. It cannot be both. One can adopt different strategies with different accounts. For example, having a Roth in an aggressive stance because of the tax structure of a Roth, and having a trust or other IRA-type account in a conservative posture. What strategy is used in each account has to do with the type of account and the risk tolerance and expectations of the investor when it comes to each account. Expectations can also change in different market environments, and it's this type of change that can present challenges to professional money managers like myself. For instance, in rallying markets, investors can catch the greed bug and will call their advisors wanting to go more aggressive. Basically, they watch the evening news and they see the markets rally and they want more profits. FOMO FOMO is the term professionals use to describe this posture. FOMO stands for fear of missing out. Advisors can lose clients in this scenario if the client thinks he or she is not making enough money. In falling markets, however, the investor presents another side of himself or herself, and hence another problem for the advisor. When markets crater, the investors will get scared and want to go to more conservative postures or just get out of stocks altogether the greed bug has now been replaced by panic mode. The investor is no longer worried about the return on his money, but only the return of his money. It's for this reason, ensuring a good match between the investor and the advisor is an important aspect when selecting both the advisor and the client. Although investors select advisors as a common occurrence, the advisor should also be selective in choosing his clients. Although most advisors will take all clients because the more money an advisor has under their management, the more money the advisor makes, it is in my opinion that advisors should not just take all all clients that come to them. Instead they should consider carefully the attention a particular client might require and if the client also has reasonable expectations and a reasonable understanding of what it means to be invested in the markets. Those advisors not using discretion in their client acceptance methodology could find themselves in multiple phone conversations or face-to-face meetings trying to explain strategies and market realities a little bit more often than they prefer. Investors should also decide if they want to stay in the market, no matter what happens. Although many advisors use the term, in it for the long term, and never consider selling no matter what the market does, this strategy may cause issues for clients as markets drop over a prolonged period of time. I find many investors think they can weather market downturns, but during severe and prolonged crashes, almost all investors will start to panic and think about getting out of at least some of their positions. I am of the opinion a stop-out or stop point should be in place by the advisor for last-ditch effort at hopefully limiting losses. After all, although markets tend to drift higher over time, no one can guarantee at some point it might not recover, or at the minimum, take years to do so the idea might seem ludicrous to some advisors, and they want you to stay in for the long term but guaranteeing market performance in any direction is not only foolhardy it is illegal for an advisor to do so in conclusion Evaluating expectations as to portfolio performance will go a long way in addressing an investor's greed and panic moments and it would be prudent to spend a considerable amount of time going over what is expected in a portfolio before committing any funds into the stock market. That does it for today's Money Matters. The opinions expressed here are my opinions only and not those of any bank or investment advisory firm nor of this station, its staff, members, or underwriters. Nothing meant here is to ensure a guarantee or be construed as individual investment advice. I hold California Insurance License, OL34249, am a licensed Medicare agent, and maintain a website, moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Kunaberg.
0: That's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have Embracing the Journey and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening.